Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it get 30, 30, bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Caroline, where are you today? Uh, today I'm in Ladywell in southeast London, which most people haven't heard of because uh, it's mostly just a marketing term to mean Catford now. So, <laughs> <laughs> Is it? If you left where you are now, how long would it take you before you reached the Catford cat? The Catford cat? Oh, about 11 minutes, I would think. Very accurate. Yeah. Although there's so much sort of Catford cat graffiti around the place, they really do lean heavily on the cat stuff around here. <laughs> But not in Ladywell. Not in Ladywell, no. Now, it's all about the well in Ladywell. Of course, yeah. And have you been in Ladywell for the last year and a half? Or have you been able to move around or We've what? done the real um, cliche thing of like, we were living in a one-bedroom flat much closer to the city and then quietly went mental during uh, the last year. With Yes. <laughs> we know that. Yes. We recognise those symptoms. Yes. yes. Um, no, yeah, it was one of those, it was that kind of vibe where I remember I turned 30 in lockdown and my boyfriend arranged this beautiful mural out of my favourite mountain goat song and it was a gorgeous day and then 11 weeks later the mural was still up and we looked like we were serial killers. <laughs> You know, things falling down on blue tack and just sort of the humid air of a dog's mouth all the time. It was it was a real devastating uh, couple of months. So we moved out to this balmy, lovely, much bigger space in Ladywell where we both have our own offices and the dog's mouth can be in a different room. Do you like the mountain goats? I'm obsessed with the mountain goats. Yeah, yeah. Ah, John from the mountain goats listens to this. <gasps> he is. He's a massive fan. Get he's out of, our, of he's town. One, he's one of our patrons. Yeah, he is. Thanks, John. You What? You think I you think I'm messing with Why you? I'm not. You told me that at the end of this podcast. <laughs> now I have to go the rest of this thinking that my hero since I was like a teenager is listening. And this is already one of my favorite podcasts anyway, so the nerve level was fairly high, lads. <laughs> oh, <laughs> It'd be like a lovely warm bath, Caroline. Actually, this is quite fitting because this book is so name-droppy and it's so littered with <laughs> with people meeting their heroes and heroes being somewhat disappointing um, that this actually is a very fitting way to frame this whole thing. <laughs> well, I think we should uh, crack on, Johnny. I feel the same. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today, you find us in Dublin in the early 1960s in a musty basement in Leeson Street. There's a woman stirring stew with one hand, a volume of Baudelaire in the other. On the couch, under a pile of coats, an old poet is coughing and groaning. 
I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. And I'm Andy Miller, author of The Year of Reading Dangerously. And today we are joined by the writer Caroline O'Donoghue. Hello, Caroline. Hello. Welcome. Lovely to be with you. Thank you for beaming in from Ladywell. We are <laughs> honoured to have you here. Caroline is the author of three novels, Promising Young Women, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, both published by Virago, and most recently, the YA fantasy series All Our Hidden Gifts, which was published by Walker Books in May. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you the question about Scenes of a Graphic Nature, which came out last year. It came out in June last year, didn't it? Yes, it mm. did. Yeah, it came out in June last year. It was slated to come out in February of last year. So that was a that was a lovely phone call. Um, but yeah, I, I, I assume you're asking me because I am one of the many novelists who was affected by the... Uh, by the great disease. Yeah, clearly if I'd asked you this a year ago, I might get a different answer. Mm. But now we're a, we're a year on. Do you think having to publicise, talk about, publish things in this way has changed the way people are going to do it from now on? Do you think, do you think this is a, a permanent state of affairs? It's an interesting question. I bloody hope not anyway, because like definitely... <laughs> <laughs> like like i'm i'm always prided myself uh, because there there are oh, thousands of novelists in the world and it's bloody hard to sell a book and it gets harder every day right but yeah. i've always prided myself on being an author who really enjoys events who really enjoys meeting people i'm quite extroverted i've got a lot of energy to give other people and not a lot of novelists are like that so i always saw that as being my competitive edge <laughs> 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 And, can confirm yeah. and when you take away my competitive edge i'm just another irish chick trying to sell a book and there's plenty of them on a zoom on that's a zoom. the thing isn't it? on a zoom, on a zoom. Yeah, I know, yeah. On a zoom yeah so all our hidden gifts is out now mm. you also are the host of the culture podcast sentimental garbage mm-hmm. which you very kindly allowed me to come on Technically, it was part of a long game so that you would eventually invite me and I would end up here. But I enjoyed it for itself. Look look how well it works. (laughs) Like two ladies at a dinner party and just returning invites. Do you want to just tell people, Batlisted listeners, why sentimental garbage is different from backlisted and why they should listen to it yes well sentimental garbage is a podcast i started about three years ago and the whole aim of it was actually because i'm such a backlisted fan and because the the reverence that you give to to old books and books that like, a lot of the time people haven't heard of and they they um, get this wonderful resurgence but I had this real hunger for the kind of books that I had grown up on, like the the Marion Keyses, the Sophie Kinslers, um, even to a to a greater extent, the sort of Nancy Mitfords and that kind of thing, of just mm. giving um, th- these books that everybody has read. Philippa Gregory is another one where there's everyone's read them. They've been adapted into movies, but there's sort of a lack of critical consensus around them. There's a lack of um, respect for like the construct and the formality and the genre and the fact that chick lit and rom-coms, they have, you know, beats the same way other genres have beats, but possibly don't get respected the way sci-fi and fantasy does, you know? And it was just a real, the perfect thing of just trying to make up for the lack of what you didn't see. Like I'm a huge fan of Marion Keys and I was desperate for a big, chunky long read on like why Marion Keys deals with these sort of inter- interweaving sisters and the kind of 
um, how yeah. close it was to the Bennett sisters. And that long read didn't exist. And I was like, oh, it's up to me to make them. And so that's what we do. We sort of go for the kind of commercial women's literature that's been sort of uh, derided over the years and try to give it the love and critical attention it deserves. It's such an interesting point. I have to believe that the only reason that they're not taken looked at or taken seriously is because they're they're, they're popular. That, mm-hmm. they're, that, that because you know hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people read Marion Keys. Yeah, John. Yeah, tell us something about the book that Caroline's chosen. The book Caroline's chosen is "Are You Somebody?" A memoir by the Irish journalist and documentary filmmaker uh, Nula O'Fuelan. The book was published in 1996 by the Irish publisher New Line Books. It became a runaway bestseller, hitting the top spot on the New York Times bestseller list. The story, the child of philandering father and an alcoholic mother, Nuala survives the poverty and pain of her childhood through her love of books. And the memoir really, the, the core of the memoir is how she struggles to establish herself in the claustrophobic and misogynistic cultural world of Ireland in the 60s and 70s, and it, with a candour and emotional bravery that shocked and inspired in equal measure. This was a very, very famous book in Ireland, and still is. As the writer June Colwell describes it, are you somebody did for memoir what Edna O'Brien had done for fiction? Colin Tobin has called it a classic of Irish autobiography. I should just say there is in fact running, I didn't know about this until today, but there is an exhibition running, uh, mm. an installation curated by June Caldwell at the Museum of Literature in Dublin specifically about this book yeah. are you somebody so so we have um we've cross promoted accidentally that's nice isn't it maybe they'll do the same for us uh, <laughs> but but so so yes as john says this book is a really famous famous successful important book that i must have sold when i was a bookseller in the 90s and i have no memory of it whatsoever and we will investigate why that might be. Yeah, did, did you think that just because oddly, I think it did very well in the US. It did very well in Ireland, very well in the US, and very well in Canada, but not yeah. in the UK. And I wonder. It's so interesting when you think of the interest in Irish women's stories that there is right now versus the utter lack of interest that seemed to be happening when this book was published. You know. Yeah, 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 for sure. It, well, we'll come on. We'll come on to it when we get to the. Yeah, when it's we get the same the year show. as Ben for Home. As it turns out, Dermot Healy's memoir. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, I, that was I hadn't read it, but that was where I, I was aware of it, but I had never read it. I'm so pleased I've I've read it now, as we will discover why. Mm. Anyway, Andy, what have you been reading this week? Thanks, John. I have been reading the new book by John Higgs, which is called William Blake versus the World. Marvelous. I've talked about John's books before on Backlisted. I talked about. His last big book, which is called Watling Street, History of Watling Street, on episode 83. Yeah. But that was about D.H. Lawrence, so people probably haven't heard it. Uh, But (laughs) I talked about uh, John on that. He's also written biographies of Timothy Leary and books about the KLF. And he had another book out about William Blake in September 2019 to tie in with the big retrospective uh, exhibition at the Tate called William Blake Now, Why He Matters More Than Ever. John is a is a polymath, I think it's fair to say. He is investigating the topic of William Blake as an artist, as a visionary, as a, a, a religious figure, as a spiritual entity. He's looking at him from... He's trying to decode uh, 
the mythos of William Blake, both that which has attached to him since his death, but also the stuff that Blake created in his own universe, his own series of symbols. And near the end of John's book, uh, he says... I know this is hard to understand, reader, (laughs) but what you've got to understand is it's taken us 200 years to get this far. Blake wrote and created in such a consistent but mysterious way. It's taken generation after generation of people to unpick or understand what he was trying to get to and how he was trying to get to it. And One of the things that I love about the book is John comes at the subject from different disciplines, from a kind of psychological discipline, dreams, a psychedelic aspect, the printing trade in uh, the era in which Blake was alive. But he doesn't give you one William Blake. He gives you Blake in all his multiplicity and tries to make the point you need to feel Blake more than you understand him and we've got a clip here this is from the end of the introduction of this book this is John Higgs himself reading here from the audiobook and I thought this would be a nice way to just give you the feel of what John is trying to do very successfully in my view in this book Blake's art contains rare gold, but to mine it is not always easy. It forces you to grapple with abstract philosophical ideas and arcane mythologies of the type it is much easier to ignore. It is powerful and strange, and it may indeed change us for good. But what sort of life would it be if we shunned opportunities like this, which might just transform both ourselves and the world around us? Many thought that the world had beaten William Blake, but there was a reason why that fight seemed like such a one-sided battle. Blake never agreed to a material struggle, and he made no effort to defend himself on that level. Instead, his time, energy and work were dedicated to an entirely different set of objectives, and he fought for those on a battlefield of his own choosing. Blake's attention was focused somewhere that it is not easy for us to define or label. We do intuitively feel, however, that it exists. Our desire to understand it better is the reason why we are so drawn to Blake and part of the reason why he has received such immense posthumous fame and praise. William Blake versus the world, we will discover, turns out to be a far more interesting story than that of the world versus William Blake. Uh, just a terrific, terrific book. I learnt so much. I was thoroughly entertained. What more can you ask for from a piece of non-fiction? Absolutely tremendous. Reading at the moment, loving it. William Blake versus the World by John Higgs, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. John, what have you been reading this week? I've been reading um, a really, really powerful, as it turns out, memoir um, by Arifa Akbar called Consumed, a sister story, um, published by Scepter uh, last month. We should declare an interest at Arifa, who is now the chief theatre critic for The Guardian. He's also a former guest on the podcast. She came on for the very popular episode on Hilary Mantel's Beyond Black. Um, But she also was the 
the founder and editor of uh, 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 Boundless, a online magazine that Unbound started three years ago. This is her first book, and it is about the death of her sister, Fozia, who dies mysteriously uh, in her mid-40s. And so on one level, the book is an attempt to understand why her sister died medically, it transpires without giving away, as it were, too, too many spoilers, that she in fact dies of TB. So one of the many things that is that, that, that works for me about this book is that you, you get a sense of how precarious, even now in the 21st century, and of course we're all thinking about disease and infection and how to protect against infection. So it, it wasn't, I'm pretty sure that, you know, Arifa didn't, didn't know that it was going to be published at the at the at the, at the moment of a, of a of a global pandemic but there's a lot of really into a history of tb and the treatment of tb and not just that she also through the book she references some of the great artistic kind of uh, presentations of of tb um, particularly uh, uh, la traviata and uh, la boheme the great operas 19th century operas but also through uh, the life of John Keats, and she, there's a really, really moving passage where she actually ends up sitting in the room in which John Keats died, thinking about her sister's death. Uh, that's one. The TB aspect is really interesting, but what really makes it work is it's it's an attempt to understand what went wrong with her relationship with her sister. As children, they well, they lived in, in in Lahore in Pakistan. Their parents had a, a fractious, difficult marriage. Uh, Fozia Arifa's sister had a difficult relationship. Her father, uh, their father, they didn't get on. She developed eating disorders, but then became seriously depressed, bipolar. So they were estranged until Fozia was in hospital and, and Arifa goes, they had been estranged for four or five years. And, and trying to understand why they had been estranged, trying to understand why she died, trying to understand what her sister's inner life was about and she writes beautifully i was just going to read a tiny little bit to give you a bit of flavor and this is about her mother saying and claiming that she knew that Fozia knew she was dying when she's in the hospital bed what did she look like when she said it i have asked what did she sound like my mother says her voice was steady as if she was stating a fact and her expression calm devoid of pain or fear i can understand why she would need to say the words aloud if she did realise that her unknown illness was leading inevitably to death, it must have felt like surreal knowledge. Declaring it to herself might have been one way to make it feel more solid, real, and perhaps this was the preparation of which Catherine Mannix, he's a writer on disease, speaks. There is more evidence of her foreknowledge now that I've begun looking for it. In her hospital bed, as she lay gasping and out of breath, she asked my mother to bring in a piece of embroidery she'd been working on. It's on a background of white cloth and it's a kind of triptych with three female figures that seem as if they're from a Renaissance painting. On closer study, they are three different versions of the same woman undergoing a process of transformation. Running vertically down the cloth are human spines sewn in thick green thread so that the figures are separated as if in their own panels. On the far right-hand side, the woman lies agonised and naked with her arms raised in pain and a spinal column is stitched across her body. The second shows her upright and in a state of ecstasy, as if she'd been freed. In the last image, she's turned into a winged, angelic creature sewn in silver and yellow thread. I see the wish for release from the carapace of a diseased body in these three images, which capture the same woman's morphing states. 
The physical body is gradually being cracked open, it seems, and peeled away. It is an envisaged escape from the burden of a body that had given Fawzia nothing but torment. Disembodiment as liberation. Was this what Fawzia was thinking as she sewed in hospital? Did the woman represent different states of herself? Was this a fantasy of her own transformation? Or was it a premonition in which her body was revealing to itself the imagery of a deadly disease travelling up her spinal column? Does our body carry a visceral understanding of its mortality when it's being attacked from the inside? This last unfinished embroidery withholds more than it reveals, but also offers distant, tantalising comfort. There are a lot of books about, about grief and, and there are lots of books about family. It's also wonderful about but you know the, 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 being an immigrant family in 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 Britain in the seventies. But the writing is it never she never doesn't miss a beat. It's it's really really good book and weirdly kind of a interesting place to to go into the the main topic of discussion today. Who's it published by? It's published by Scepter. What's it called? It's called Consumed: A Sister Story, Arifa Akbar. The book chat will continue on the other side of this message. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. So, Nuala O'Fuelan's book, Are You Somebody?, is a very Irish memoir. And so, I wanted to set the scene with an amazing... Uh, it, go to YouTube and find this. This is an edited version of it. But this is a fox pop that was conducted on uh, on the streets of Dublin. I think this is Dublin in 1979. And, uh, well, it, it, it speaks for itself. Is there a devil? Yeah. Yes, there is. Where is he? He's in hell. 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 Do you believe in the devil? Well, uh, not as... Uh, an actual person, but I believe in his power. Do you believe in the devil? Well, kind, kind of. <laughs> I don't believe he's got a big long tail and a big 
think, okay, but um, <laughs> I'd say there is just something there, you know, there is a hell. Why would somebody end up in hell? Well, I mean, <laughs> to willingly do something that they know is wrong, yeah. you know, to hurt another person willingly. Yeah. What you'd call sin, I suppose. Yeah, yeah well, so. yeah. Do people go to hell? Yes. Why do they go to hell? Because they're doing the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing during their lives. And is there no way of getting out of that? No. Um, go to confession and try tell the priest all their sins. And what happens then? And he forgive you and try and try never to do it again. Okay. What happens to you after you die? You go to poetry. your whole, your soul goes to purgatory. And after that? That we are living in hell. Real red flag there at the end. <laughs> Let's keep Very the energy up for everybody. <laughs> oh, it's so good. I thought that was just spectacular, right? Uh, be, and the reason why, uh, uh, Caroline, I wanted to play that in before we start this discussion of uh, Noala O'Fallon's memoir is that Noala O'Fallon was a product of that island. Yeah. I think it's... Uh, in a way that I hadn't really... I'm not sure I've ever read a book that, that communicated in her, you know, from her point of view, what the country was like after the Second World War. I'm sure if we listen to that clip again and carefully, we would find that she's every single character. <laughs> you know, <Yeah. laughs> she's she's the kid who's like, yeah, you go for something, doing something bad, something bad, you get it on purpose. And and she's that woman at the end saying, at the end, hell yeah. is the life we live every day. She, that's what I love about Nula is that she's everybody, you know, um, there's, there's, there's so much in this book, really. There's, yeah, there's the standard sort of Irish misery thing that you're you feel like you're used to, but immediately feels quite fresh and different when Nula's talking about it, and also because it's you know self admittedly a little bit bohemian and a little bit middle class while still being so entrenched in this sort of um, Dublin poverty, and then we have this sort of artsy existential sort of quite distant woman, and then we have this you know. TV producer living in London during the feminist movement. And then we have this middle-aged woman trying to reckon with her own aging towards the end. And it's just, she's everybody. She's everything. I adore her. She would have hated me. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to, we're going to come on to that later. I've got a thing. I've got a thing to ask you about. Um, She wouldn't have hated you. she, She was tricky though, right? She was tricky. Tricky. And I think as well, I'm I'm not a big memoir reader myself. I find myself I'm I get very frustrated with authors' self-construction of themselves. Do you know what I mean? I I I, I when I can sense somebody is hiding their arrogance, hiding their vanity, trying to appear more interesting than they are, trying to appear like more of a victim than they are, there's something sort of it's very uncanny valley for me in my head, and I get find it very difficult to finish a lot of memoirs. But for Nula, Nula mm. is all of these things. She's so vain. She's so arrogant. She's very selfish. She's really demanding. Um, she is needy. She's depressed. She's depressive. 
But and she she is self-aware enough and she's a smart enough writer to know that she's coming across this way and she chooses to leave it in anyway. Yeah. And I find that such an act of bravery. And people talked about this memoir when it came out as being, um, oh, it's the most like, startlingly honest thing. And I assume what they meant was because she spoke about her father in such a way and he was a public figure and because she spoke about her sex life and, you know, being queer and all this kind of stuff. But I think what's really amazing, it's the real honesty and the real brutality is just how much she leaves in of herself, the flawed, needy, depressive, vain, arrogant Mm. person. And that just turns Mm -hmm. me on every time I read it. John, had you read this book before? You hadn't. No, I hadn't. And and I I was vaguely aware of it. What's blown me away about it is, yes, the honesty is, 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 is palpable on every page. But it's it's very interesting the way she structures it. Right? I mean, it's 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 the fact that she starts and ends with her with her parents. It, it isn't a book that that tries to give you a kind of uh, I'm going to remix my life to make it more acceptable or to make to make more sense of it. Uh, she confesses at various points during the book that her life doesn't make much sense. Yeah, <laughs> you know, she she mm. she's she. She doesn't try and fit it into some kind of neat pattern. As you say, the word tricky is a good one. I suspect she would she would be yeah, quite difficult. Tricky can mean all sorts of things. What it can mean is you have a good understanding of how things work and you want them to work right. And sometimes that can be um, hard to deal with, but sometimes it's necessary. So I'm not. that's not a negative thing. It's just she strikes me as someone with a big personality and a, a sense of a good sense of herself and what works and what doesn't work. What's interesting is I often see her in my own mind as being the kind of dark twin to Maeve Binchy. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> in, Brilliant. in that, you know, I yeah. I, I, yeah. I love what I love Maeve Binchy and I love watching all Maeve Binchy Me interviews too. and the kind of the bigness of her, not just physically but in spirit, and the way she's so good at being entertaining and she's really crafted that public facing character. And she's got all these anecdotes and she's wonderful. And I feel like Nula is that sort of shadow side of that personality is that sort of that that version of Binchy that doesn't quite get expressed the sort of the frustration the the sort of mm. need the need to be recognized the the, the anger like and it's the it No Binchy? I like it dark yeah. Binchy is yeah, yeah. the uh, is the is the uh, the the spin off we've been yeah. waiting but for but also uh, so do you feel it's it's like watching it's like watching feminism happen on the page in front of you. That's one of the things I thought was a historical document. Yeah. I mean, you know, her, and her her childhood and the thing is that she begins to notice. I've, uh, there's a really uh, I found quite shocking passage about you know a, a book the the the, the um, field day anthology of of Irish writing which published by Seamus Dean and there's kind of oh, yeah. no women there's yeah. <laughs> like no women in it yeah. and she was calling that out I mean very from a from a very early age that the sort of the uh, and and uh, and it's it's almost like she, you know it's, it's being a, a, a Martian in a in a landscape as a woman you know it was, yeah. she was able to observe things that that maybe a male writer would uh, would not have would, would have taken for granted yeah. 
there's this yeah, extreme, this really funny. It almost feels like a David Sedaris anecdote or something. Um, towards in the kind of the middle of the book, where she's talking about this guy who she's having an affair with in New York, and they hate each other. They they obviously <laughs> cannot stand each other. He's some kind of art critic or something. I actually wrote down one of the things he says about her. Um, he's he's very anti-Irish. He went into a full rant of physical distaste, distaste for me and people like me. People as I understood it, who had no edge, who weren't in the game, who were unimportant, mm, yeah. who were soft and melancholy yeah, yeah. and depressed instead of out there in the bright, hard world fighting towards success. And she goes on to talk about how he thought that Irish people were soggy, which is not untrue. <laughs> yeah, But yeah, there's this thing right, when you're talking right. about the sort of evolution of feminism on the page where she's very frank, where she's like, I wanted to be near interesting things and interesting people. And the only way to do that was to have sex with people I didn't like. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> She's once said it sometimes just for exercise. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's so funny. So listen, we've got some clips. We've got some clips. And what we do, what we're doing today is we've, we've got a series of clips that uh, as, as the program goes on are chronologically throughout her, her career. So um, we're very lucky to be able to have access to some of this stuff. And um, why don't we begin at the beginning? So this is Nula on a US book tour with Frank McCourt. This is like 1997. You'll hear how good she is with the audience, right? And you'll hear how full of life she is and, and joy and how much she's enjoying herself as she explains the title, Are You Somebody? I'm going to explain the title. You see this title, Are You Somebody? Which in the Irish edition has a question mark. It's based on, sometimes I used to be on the television in Ireland and then I might be in a bar a few nights later and there'd be maybe a few women out for a few scoops and they'd, you'd see them talking to each other and looking at me and then one of them would wobble across and stick her nose right into my nose and say, are you somebody? And uh, that's a very important question, like, am I somebody? And if so, what type of a body would would I be, was a question it turned out I had to ask myself like in my 50s. And also, are you somebody neatly got rid of what I knew would be the reaction in Dublin to my saying nothing about myself at all, which was, who does she think she is, you know? Uh, and I wanted them to know that I knew I was nobody just as much as they knew I was nobody. Right? <laughs> Caroline, I have to ask this because we always ask it on Batlisted. So, you're you're way too young to have been to any book events. We know that. We've established that beyond all doubt. Way, way too young to have been to any events that... I just learned to read. Thank you very much. Yeah, the Nuro Whalen might have done, right, around this book. So when did you first encounter either her or, or this particular book? So I book? thought about this a lot, and I do think my very emotional relationship with this book is because I found it during a very emotional moment. So a few years ago, um, my grandfather was being put into a nursing home and we, me and my family were sort of um, gutting his house where I had spent every day uh, after school growing up. Um, so we could rent out the house so we could pay for the nursing home. It's, it's quite, you know, quite sad day. Mm. Um, but my grandmother who had died when I was 13, uh, her room had been completely preserved and everything was the same. And, and you know, her little pearl handled brushes and her mink coat and, and all that was all there and her stack of books by the bed. 
and her prayer book on top of that. And there was a few, you know, Jean Pladies. She loved, she loved like historical romances mm. and that kind of thing. Mm. But at the, at the top, the only one that had a bookmark in it was Nula's book, was this book that I have right here in front of me. And um, I think when, when you know, she, she died when I was not even a teenager yet, really. So we never had that sort of intellectual relationship. And so when you see a bookmark in something, you kind of went, well, what was the last page my grandmother read, you know, when I was... Um, you know, before she went into hospital. And it was this page from quite early on in the book about this moment when Nula is stuck in Dublin. Now she's stuck in London. She can't, she hates it. She's doing domestic work. She can't get back to Ireland. And I'm going to read it a bit later on. And the way she gets back is quite unique. And I just thought it was so moving. And I sat there and I just read the whole book and let my family clear out the rest of the house. <laughs> um, <laughs> Great on work. The, on the floor of my no, grandmother's old bedroom. And for me, that time as well, I was I hadn't I had written, but I hadn't yet published my first novel. And that novel was um, based entirely in in London with English characters. And I felt this sense that, you know, a lot of people were asking me why I hadn't written Irish characters, why I hadn't written an Irish setting. And part of it was because I had at that point been living in London for so long, I had felt a kind of a rootlessness and that I was a bit like, you know, right. what what do I actually have to say as an Irish adult, considering I've never had a real job there and I've never paid taxes there. And this book just read, I read it the, the whole whole day and all night. And it, it became a sort of a, a road back in a way. And it's become it's just an extremely emotional text for me ever since then. And then a few years later, uh, I was asked to come back to Cork because they were doing this um event called Naked Boys Reading, which is exactly what it sounds like on the tin. Good Lord. <laughs> and so it's kind of like a, a cabaret slash political queer sort of night where um, and they were putting it on in this old church that was since become a performance art space. And I, I, as the visiting author, was supposed to collate a selection of readings that naked men would then have to read on stage. <laughs> <laughs> and it was hilarious and they were all such good sports and they were from sort of 18 to 60 and I stood up on stage with them me fully clothed of course and one of the one of the readings I put together was the exact same reading um that I read that on the floor of my grandmother's house and afterwards that boy came up to me and he's like a real country boy and he played hurling and all this and he said you know I was practicing this for my mom the other night and she told me she had to give up a baby when she was 17 and it was wow. just it was the most incredible so this book yeah. is and this work has just sort of laid eggs in me in, in a way that no other book has you know well look um you've talked about your very strong emotional connection with it and and ireland it was a sensation when it was published in in ireland but i thought and therefore let's do a a a, a nula style thing and hear <laughs> from the woman herself of how this book came about what happened to me was, you see, I write this column and from time to time, very small publishers would come to me and they'd ask, could they collect old opinion columns? Not because anyone at all wanted to read them, but because it's a quick, cheap piece of bookmaking. <laughs> Slap a cover on it, looks like a book. And it's so despicable a form of publication that even I said no. <laughs> but there I was two years ago and I had nothing, it seemed to me. I had nothing. I had no fella, I had no nothing. And, you know, nothing, actually. So I said yes. And then because I was ashamed, I said, I'll write an introduction. Then at least there'll be something new. And of course, I 
put it out of my mind because I didn't want to write. I look on writing as hard work and I don't want to do it. And it was due in March, so by April I'd stopped answering the phone in case it was him. But polite as he was, he did keep mentioning it. And, uh, but I couldn't write that in personal. I couldn't write the first sentence. I'd written loads and loads of impersonal columns. A little bit personal, but never anything that went me, me, me. Because it's terribly hard for a middle-aged Irish woman, however confident she may appear, to make that claim, you know, and say, I, I can begin a sentence with I. John, you said correctly, I think, that this Are You Somebody is a book about reading. She's almost the perfect backlisted author in as much as her commitment to reading and what reading did for her was not merely escapism. It it was well, no, actually, it was it was escapism in the true sense. It, it helped her escape, <laughs> physically, literally escape her 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 upbringing. So I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of that. Yeah. If there were nothing else, reading would obviously be worth living for. Saul Bellow, Alice Monroe, Chekhov, Keats, Owen McNamee, Monteland, James. James Joyce, Tolstoy, Mailer, Dacia Mariani, Dermot Healy, Douglas Dunn, Trollope, Richard Ford, the Queen Ert O'Leary, Dunn, Colette, Robert Lowell, Jane Eyre, Naipaul, Kafka's Up in the Gallery, Roddy Doyle, John McGarhan, Racine, Kawabata. I don't have to observe any hierarchy, but I recognise that there is a hierarchy. There is great and less great and so on, down to trash. When I was a teacher, I had to avoid quoting some things because they moved me so deeply that I was afraid I'd cry in front of the students. The big speeches in King Lear did that, and the end of the tempest, and death be not proud, and so will no more go, no more a roving. And what Ralph says to Isabel Archer just before he dies in Portrait of a Lady, and Keats's wonderful letters. I presented writing like this to my students with confidence, just as it has been confidently presented to me. I think classic literature is deservedly so-called. I might never have read Phaedra or Dejection and Ode or Samson Agonistes or Lelaison Dangereuse or Pope or Hopkins or Ben Jonson, but that they were prescribed texts. I don't have any objection to the art being made by dead white males. Far from it. The thought that I might have missed this literature, that I might have been born later when it was decided it was too difficult for young people, fills me with horror. I never think of gender when I'm reading. If questions about it force me, themselves on me, I have to come out of reading into this world. Um, and then I, this is a nice little... I like what derives from literature. Fine commentary like Cynthia Ozick's or Seamus Heaney's or Henry James's prefaces, biography, autobiography. The only thing I don't read much of now when time is so precious are middle-range authors. Yeah, Kundera, yeah, this is great. Kundera, say, or Paul Auster. <laughs> writers who play middle-level games. When I, <laughs> when I want pleasure... I want perfect trivia. Romances by Judith Krantz, thrillers by Scott Turow, moral tales by Maeve Binchy, or else I want the real great thing. Isn't that brilliant? Amazing. Well, one of the things about her, it strikes me, is how open she yeah. is, right? That's not a glib dismissal of Kundra oh, no. and Paul Oster, those middle, middle, <laughs> middle range authors. <laughs> That's a kind of well. I've read them and I've I've taken them at their word, and this is what I feel about it. I know it's the, it's the middle range games that I love. It's, yeah. it's just perfect, isn't it? So, Caroline, we heard uh, Nula talking there about how the book came about. I know. Do you think there's a kind of spontaneity in the prose? 
if we believe her about how she wrote it, is that one of the things that that kind of endears it to us? It's funny because it, it's it feels mildly embarrassing now, um, going on this big uh, monologue about all the the ways in which this book has meant things to me, and then there's Nula being like. Yeah, well, I didn't want to write it, and it seems like <laughs> seems like a cheap, nasty way to make a book. And <laughs> yeah, but your experience is clearly shared by you know many people. Yes, I do agree with you though, because um, in so in this version that I have, the first edition, um, with the columns uh, all at the back, mm. she does sort of say, you know, she does give an explanation, a foreword, saying, ah, yeah, they've asked me to do this and all this kind of thing, <laughs> um, and. You can tell when she starts to write it, she thinks it's going to be 2,000 words long. And then she you, you get a feeling that she can't stop herself, you yeah, know? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And that's what's so compelling about it. And she's it almost feels at the beginning like um like a Wikipedia page she's writing for herself. And it's like, here, here's who my parents were and here's who my granddad was and that's that. And you don't need yeah, to know yeah. much more. But it's like she scratched a scab and it won't stop bleeding. And the fact that then 200 pages later, we end with her parents and their sort of tacit neglect of her and their neglect of one another and the, and the sort of emotional games that were going on there. And it, it really feels like something that she had to write for her, you know? Yeah. And totally by surprise to herself. I mean, it's so interesting to contrast her with Dermot Healy, but you could say they have the same need. You know, Dermot Healy took 10 years to get a book right and Nula wrote this in six weeks or something, right? Mm. But there's still a need to be present and to let the reader know that you are reading something that really matters to what to the writer in the moment, right? In the yeah. moment of your reading it, it really, it really matters. She flings out fragments almost of revelation that you almost feel she's surprised mm. that she's put them on the page and then she has to speed past them for a few paragraphs before she circles back round to pick it up again because she didn't know she was going to do that uh it's very exciting to read oh, uh, i must so say accurate i think and it's like um, John and the bit that you were reading about how when she was a teacher and she had to refrain from giving her students things because she would get so overwhelmed with emotion as she was reading the end of the Tempest or something. But you feel that in the book as well, where um, there are often times where she kind of slips into a, what I think of as an almost Nora Ephron type of voice of like, "Well, I'm a sassy lady and I have a thing to say," <laughs> and, and then she'll suddenly be overwhelmed by feeling. There's the chapters where she's talking about her time in Oxford and she's kind of talking somewhat abstractly about like Beatlemania and what it was like and the kind of the sceniness of it all. And then she sort of gets like trapped in this scene of um her of her big heartbreak that she's having in Oxford and she suddenly sort of like looks down at the at the pavement and, and she can't believe that for the amount of sorrow she felt on those slabs, how mm. they can't be cracking in two. Mm, and that comes yeah, out of yeah, yeah. nowhere. And then end of chapter, let's skip on. <laughs> Caroline, you've got the original uh, first edition of Are You Somebody There? And this is, we, you know, the, the copy we've got, the, the modern copy, has virtually no blurb except some quotes and mm. a little passage from the book. But how did they pitch this book originally? 
it's very interesting because this is all blurb and no quotes. Mm, okay, <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So I don't, I don't even know if they were sending out any proof copies and uh, or they couldn't get any quotes or, or what. But what's interesting, even looking at the front cover and we have a bit of kind of folk art of an angel here. Um, <laughs> we do, yeah. Which I don't love personally. No. But then it's the life and times of Nulo Foylan. And they've even put the, the times in the, the typeface of the Irish Times. So clearly it's a bit uh, of... <laughs> okay. Like, you remember the newspaper, the right? The right okay, <laughs> so it yeah, feels yeah. a little bit desperate already. Um, <laughs> so on the back, the back copy reads, Given to watching the world like a spy behind enemy lines, Nulo Foylan now turns the exceptional sensibility upon her own life in one of the most personal Irish memoirs ever written. One of the nine children of the pioneering social columnist Terry O'Sullivan and a romantic bookish mother, she writes of 1950s Ireland, her UCD years, the sexual mores of Dublin in the early 1960s and the exuberance of Beatles era Oxford, as well as her years as a university lecturer and B- it's like a CV, and BBC and Red and RTE right. television is, producer. Yeah. Always candid, she also touches on some of those affairs of the heart that have coloured her struggle for a sense of self as an Irish woman. This remarkable memoir is followed by a selection of Nulo Foylan's columns on people, issues and places from the Irish Times over the past decade. Taken together, the heartfelt memoir and equally ardent journalism of Are You Somebody provide a fascinating portrait of both Ireland and one of its most popular and respected commentators. It's so accurate yet entirely fails to represent the spirit of the book (laughs) sorry if you're listening whoever wrote that i mean it was a brave effort but you would not think that a book answering to that blurb would be published and cause a sensation in both ireland and america yeah. Which it did, right? It, it It's six weeks at the top of the New York Times bestseller list or something like that. Um, it's amazing. I would love to know how it happened exactly. Because the, they're, they're, they're relying on so much here. They're relying on our father's name. They're relying on the BBC. They're relying on RT. They're relying on, they're relying on all these institutions that she's been tangentially related to. She's like, please care. Please care a little. And by the way, here's some columns just to pad out the back of the book. Exactly. Just- and it's interesting because there's so much name dropping in the book and especially in the early pages and it's almost like she's trying to convince herself that she yeah. has weight yeah, yeah, yeah. that she has legitimacy and she should be publishing a book and then we have this how how did that domino effect of its popularity happen especially overseas i would love to know this is a an extract from an interview with a an American interviewer called Terence Winch. This is from 2002. So we're talking five or six years after the success of Are You Somebody and you know, it is true to say that that success was uh, not anticipated, I think, by anyone involved in the book, including the author. And Nula had to get used suddenly to being this uh, public figure in a way that she hadn't really been before. So, so this is from 2002. This is very interesting to hear her talk about what that means for her at that point. I think in Ireland it's found fairly unseemly a, that I, anyone should write so much, uh, so care so much yeah. about the body, and B, that anyone of my age should care so much. They might forgive yeah. me if I was young. Yeah. Mm. But, you know, but but there's a satirical radio show in Ireland, uh, fellas, of course, yeah. and they they mock me all the time. Really? Yes. Yeah, well, they mock me anyway some of the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really vicious well, I, mockery. I imagine it would be threatening to a lot of people. Yeah, and they think yeah. it's horrible that a woman of my age is still going on about bodies. 
really? Yeah, because, you know, there is a thing that I call the JFK effect. When I land in America, I become younger because this society allows women yeah. and men yeah. to be younger longer yeah. than my society yeah. or than all, any of the old European societies. We are written off very soon after the age of nubility. Is that changing at all, do you think, in, in no. Ireland today? On the face of it, Ireland, um, you know, is the third, was last year, the third fastest growing economy in the world and the fastest growing in the EU. And, you know, people don't go home to their mummy for their dinner, they go to restaurants and there's all kinds of superficial changes. But deep down, Ireland's a very conservative, very, uh, very woman-hating uh, mm. society. The big change in Ireland is the same as the big change everywhere in the first world. Children, the attitude to children has changed. Every interview is golden. <laughs> I've got to tell you, it's so hard finding, just chopping these things down. You know, this book was published in 1996. Now, to me, that doesn't seem that long ago, right? Mm. Something Colin Tabin says, you know, he said it was like, when it was published, he said it was like a glass exploding. You know, he said it was no Irish woman had written with this degree of honesty and clarity about, about sex and about abortion uh, affairs, you know, it was like, I think it is maybe harder for, for English people who, who hadn't lived with the, that that degree of shame. That's, and That's and, what and I mean. That, that's why, like, this is 1996. It, it, I just want yeah, to yeah. reiterate that, you know. But, you know, it's also, 1996 is a funny year because it's also the year the last Magdalene laundry closed, you know. And yeah. I think what's in, what happened in Ireland specifically, and it's very cliched and very, you know, doer to keep going back to the laundries but so much of it so much of Irish female interior life um both literally and metaphorically does come back to the laundries because it is this thing that happens where we start with this 19th century ideal of you know how are we gonna you know these fallen women these sex workers these these whatever uh, how are we going? How is society going to account for these people? Let's make an institution. But the more profitable this thing becomes, the widening of the definition of a fallen woman becomes so so widespread as to basically mean anything. And my own parents and people and older people in my life have talked to me about this about how when someone became tarnished, became fallen, and they could be put in these institutions for the rest of their lives with no warning, mm. the culture mm. of fear that creates in a woman and the, then that becomes inherited by subsequent generations. And I think it's still being inherited, never goes away. And the fear of the body and the fear of how your own body can yeah. turn against you. And it's, these are arguments that have been so well trodden by so many Irish female authors. And I don't think it's, um, it's a, it's a, you know, we, we, we keep digging, you know, I, and I, we keep trying to get to the center of it. She keeps writing about the fear of getting pregnant and yet the recklessness of that not yeah. preventing her, right? That's a big theme in the first half of the book. The lucky How lucky she is not to get pregnant because what getting pregnant would mean yeah. in that society, in that era, even in, as I say, the 1970s. I know, <laughs> you know, I know. It's, it's dreadful. I'm like, can I, can I read that little bit, actually? Yes, yes. please, let's hear it. Yeah. In particular... So, yeah, um, I, I mentioned a little bit earlier on about how she's working as a domestic um, worker in England, but she has no way of getting back to Ireland, even though she's deeply, deeply miserable. <clears throat> An accident got me the fare back to Ireland. Lives were ruined at that time, thousands and thousands of them, quite casually, by the rules the patriarchy made for young women. 
They were hotly pursued and half longed to yield, but they were not able to defend themselves against pregnancy and they were destroyed if they got pregnant. I got the fair back to Ireland through one of these tragic pregnancies. An Irish woman I know, a successful, well-dressed executive assistant who would normally wouldn't have mixed with me, thought she might be pregnant. She came to me and we went to the doctor. She took off her jumper and bra and he just peered at her and said, yes, she was pregnant. He said it coldly. She paid him. Outside, it was a winter night. She held onto the wall, dry-eyed, trying to grasp the ruin that faced her. Almost the worst thing was, how would she tell her parents? In the end, I was given the fare back to Ireland to tell them, while she waited in London to hear how they took it. That was how I got back to Dublin. This young woman, who had barely begun her life when pregnancy struck her. But that is her story for her to tell. All I know is that she hid out in Belfast and that I was there with her for the last few days before the baby was born. We walked around all the time aimlessly because we had no money to go anywhere. I saw her a few hours after the birth, weeping in her bed, her milk seeping through the bandages she was tightly bound with. Her father came up from Dublin and he and I were the only people in the side chapel when a priest baptised the baby. Then I took the baby to the train to Dublin. In Dublin I got a bus to Blackrock. I handed the baby into the nun at a home there to be kept until it was adopted. All that way, the baby never cried. I didn't know until many years later that the mother used to go out to Black Rock to that home and look through the hedge of the children's playtime in the hope of seeing a child who looked like herself. And still, I was having unprotected sex myself. I didn't know how to get out of having sex. I never thought of the man as having responsibility to me. Though now I don't forgive the older man, for instance, who took me on a holiday to the west of Ireland, which I'd never seen before when I was 19. This man was Irish, but he had been travelling abroad. He was the first travelled man I'd ever known, and I revered him for his knowledge. I felt I had to sleep with him to keep him interested in me, but I only knew how to court. I remember him bending over my naked body. I hated it being out in the open. In the bed, in the damn cottage, we had to pretend to be married to get. He was pulling at the hair under my arm as a soft, playful, initiatory move. Relax, he ordered. Come on, (laughs) relax. Jesus. (laughs) It's just... So it's such brilliant writing, though. It's such brilliant writing. It's so economical and so the pacing of it is is incredible. That's what I kept thinking. I kept thinking, how are you doing that? How are you doing that? You know, uh, uh, just on a technical level, how does every chapter keep its momentum rolling along? It's not. It's not because she zooms past everything. That's not what I mean. It's it's. It feels to me like every little paragraph is emotionally weighted and she she understands, perhaps not until a couple of paragraphs later, what her attitude is to it is and then she builds it and keeps going. It's amazing writing, Caroline. She really seems to be having an organic experience with her own memory, you know? Yes. And it does <laughs> seem like free association in a way that seems so natural and so unplanned. And then to go from this like hideous story about the woman and her child and then to be told in a cottage by an older man to, to relax <laughs> and it's like how yeah. could yeah. anyone possibly react and it's just oh it ruins me there, yeah there's so many of those shocking moments with the men i mean that that's one about the american who comes and, and basically sort of rapes her yeah <laughs> and then says that he's got a telegram he just got a telegram at the door saying his mother had died. It's, it's, a, it's a really haunting scene. It's really haunting, and yet she frames it as being, like, the only time she understood what sex was about. 
was that yeah. this man needed yeah. this this um, compulsory yeah. release after his mother had died. It's like, is that, that was, what sex that, is about? <laughs> that's one of those moments. That's one of those moments where I put the book down and stared out the window for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what? 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 Um, well, look, I, I, Anne Enright tells a very funny story about being on a panel with, uh, uh, Nula and uh, uh, she, you know, and Enright had stood up to give her speech and she'd not done very well. And she sat down and Nula whispered something in her ear and she doesn't say what it is, which we describes as being like basically a knife between the ribs. <laughs> but well, then Nula goes up and gives the greatest speech she's ever seen in her life, you know. Um, but Anne Enright says that in a kind of... And the reason why she did that is because she was committed to telling the truth. Telling the truth is was the engine of her creativity. And so the breakthrough that she has, uh, she was talking about on that clip we heard, once she gets over the fear of saying, I... Once she gets over the fear of of her upbringing and as a, a quote-unquote Irish woman, that she can say, I... Once she starts saying, I... All this stuff comes out. Yeah, um, Caroline. Mm. Uh, so on the lo- on the line that she would always tell the truth. I've got a thing for you now, which is that I found a review. Uh, you the are you are the host of the podcast Sentimental Garbage. Of course, Nula uh, didn't live long enough to see podcasts. She'd have been very good. Oh, what a guess! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I found a review by her in the Times in 1970. This is like 51 years ago of the novel Love Story by Eric Segal, right? Uh, and uh, which is made into a very famous film with Ryan O'Neill and uh, uh, Olivia de Havilland. Ali McGraw. Ali McGraw. You're right, Ali McGraw, not Olivia Ali de Havilland. McGraw. That'd be ridiculous. Yeah, I was thinking. Shut up. <laughs> That'd be absurd. Um, but I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs from this. And I want you imagine, to imagine that you have to respond to Nula in the oh, moment, Caroline, God. okay? All right, here we go. Once we knew where we were with bestsellers, we were in Never Never Land. Since Lady Audley's secret, bestsellers have been made from sex, violence and exotic location. The first two elements durable, the last the one that dates. Who thrills now to Hall Kane's Isle of Man? American <laughs> That's a great line. American bestsellers are the most sexy and the most violent. They are set in mythic communities like Hollywood or the Mafia. They are very, very long. But Love Story is an American bestseller. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have bought a book which is short, pure, unviolent, and written by a man who, besides writing film scripts, teaches classics. And then do you want to hear the last paragraph? Mm-hmm. It is genuinely dispiriting to think of this book's huge readership. <laughs> <laughs> there is wow. a hopeless disproportion between the world of teachers, librarians, solid commentators on Joyce and the world which has chosen to make Love Story a publishing phenomenon. This trivial book is more important to the death of the novel than what happens inside literary history. <laughs> Bestsellers have always been escapists. They've always been acknowledged as a temporary alternative to reality, which remains intact. Escapist pseudo-realism is new, successful, and thoroughly disturbing. 
<laughs> Caroline Donahue, <Yeah>. Donahue please <laughs> react on the spot. Escape, well, I'm a big fan of escapist pseudo-realism, so I, I'm, I'm slain <laughs> on that one, on that account. Um, however, I will say I do kind of agree with her to an extent. Often when I uh, tell people what my podcast is about, they... Uh, they uh, interpret it as, oh, so you um, discuss bad books. <laughs> no. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I often have, you know, I say to people and they say, oh, are you going to do um, Fifty Shades of Grey or are you going to do this, that or the other? I was like, no, I liked, I, it's good books. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's simply good books. I think, I think Nula would get that possibly. I think she would know the difference somehow between the other Bolin girl and uh, Fifty Shades of Grey or a love story or something. <laughs> My take on it, Caroline, is she probably wouldn't have written that in the year 2000. That is a no, yeah, that is a 1970 way of looking. We're still thinking about high culture and low culture and how they are opposed to one another. And she says that at one point when she's talking about how the academics have learnt the trick of writing about literature and it's, it really wounds her that her students have have kind of they're not feeling it in the way that she you know she wants she says it's books have got to change you you know they've got to change you completely this little thing that she writes about the irish literary scene biographers of irish writers will be scraping the barrel very deep if they ever come to me but i'm representative of a certain milieu for every real writer around there were 10 merely literary minded people like me perhaps literary dublin needs both kinds so well, look, I want to listen to a couple of things and I'm going to warn, I'm giving a slight warning to listeners now. This is pretty emotionally strong uh, material that we're about to play, but it seems to me uh, important in understanding her approach to telling the truth, even if the truth might not be what you want to hear. So on, the, on April the 13th, 2008... RTE broadcast uh, an interview with uh, Nudro Fuelen, conducted by Marianne Fanukin. And this was a big deal. And they were great friends, weren't yeah. they? They were, they, were, they were very close. Nula knew, had been diagnosed, she knew she was dying and she wanted to give this interview. And so we're going to hear a, a few clips from this. And the first one is her talking about why she wanted to give the interview. And now you're doing this interview in a completely different context. And I understand it is to explain yourself to yourself as well as to us as well. Yeah, it must look as if I'm an awful devil for publicity altogether. And in a sense, I am in that since I wrote Are You Somebody and it reached what it is the truth to say was a huge response. I have, in a sense, put myself out there. And uh, it, the interviews I did back then, 10 or 11 years ago, are like one bookend in which I presented myself. And lots of people didn't like me, and lots of people did. But one way or another, it was company for me who happens to be a childless, middle-aged woman. And now I'm actually dying. And um, I have metastatic cancer in three different parts of my body. And somehow or other, it helps me to set up the other 
bookend and to say to those people who were interested in me and did care about me, well, this is how it is for me now, for what it's worth. Um, I know that's tough to listen to, um, but I wanted to include it because I'm trying to to emphasise to uh, anyone listening to this that the artistic method is the same. The medium is different, but the desire to tell the truth sure. about what's happening is mm. is the thing that has driven her forward from the writing of Are You Somebody? But on that telling the truth thing, what I'm interested in is because she she does mention living people so liberally and, and many of those living people yeah. have had great, huge things to say about it. Um, chief of which is Nell McCafferty, who mm. was mm. her partner for 15 years. Yeah, yeah. But, and it's not as if Nula at any point is lying about their relationship, but she is obscuring it massively. It is the only place in the whole book where she is veiled you know? Yeah. I don't know enough about the personalities involved, right? To me, within, let's, let's say I knew nothing about the author and I were reading the memoir, that wouldn't seem veiled to me. Or if it seemed veiled, it would seem important to the writer mm. and it would seem legitimately held back. But yeah. what did we learn subsequently then that makes you feel it, it's veiled? Well, Nell has subsequently gone on and talked in, in the press about her relationship to to how she's mentioned in this. And basically, you know, she her argument is, to very um, gracelessly summarise, is that she's kind of making out that the two of them were sort of roommates or gal pals, where elsewhere in the book, she has these um, sort of riveting, sort of very physical, very sexual, quite mm. graphic for considering the genre she's writing in relationships with men that are full of emotional turmoil. And... I think to Nell, it seems as if like it's that classic and quite homophobic lens of, um, oh, you kind of needed a break from men. So you took a time out with a, with a nice yeah. lady mm. for a while and you both right. went to Bogota, you right. know, and, and uh, <laughs> Nell sort of um, seems to internalize it as a kind of as a kind of um, internalized homophobia kind of thing of she didn't really want to be characterized as being a lesbian or a gay woman mm. or a queer okay. woman because there really wasn't a space in the 90s for an openly bisexual woman i think it would have confused a lot of people so uh, yeah so uh, as well nell talks about her need to be fancied was was quite uh yeah. ever present like even in her 60s she has this moment in that en right piece when she's like you know, no, nobody's asking me to dance. And this is a sort of a 65-year-old woman and you'd yeah. think she'd be over such concerns, <laughs> but she still wants to be asked to dance. She still, she yeah. loves men. She loves their gaze. She loves being around them. And I think that's quite difficult for her to square when she's so also so bloody furious, you know? Tricky. That's what I said, tricky. Tricky. Anne Enright says a wonderful thing. She says that she was truthful to the point of being self-destructive. And it was just that point of combustion that sparked my interest as a writer. And I, I, it is that thing, isn't it? It's it's a it's that sense of of she's she's touching stuff that most people will will, will not go. They won't go there. They won't they won't take that that risk. Well, let's hear, let's give the last word uh, to Nula from that 
final interview, your listeners who've stuck with us will recall we heard people in uh, Dublin in 1979 being asked, did they believe in the devil? Did they believe in hell? Did they believe in the afterlife? Here's Nula O'Fuelan being asked a similar question. Do you believe in an afterlife? No, I do not. Or a god? Well, that's a different matter somehow, you know. Uh, I, I actually don't know how we all get away with our un- unthinkingness. Often last thing at night, I've walked the dog down the lane and you look up at the sky illuminated by the moon and behind the moon, the the Milky Way and the Milky Way and the Milky Way. And you know you're nothing on the edge of one planet compared to this universe unimaginably vast up there and unimaginably mysterious. And I've done that for years, looked up at it and kind of given it a wink and thought, well, I don't know what's going on. And I still don't know what's going on. But I, I can't be consoled by by mention of God, though I respect and adore the art that arises from the love of God, and though nearly everybody I love and respect, they themselves believe in God, it is meaningless to me, really meaningless. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. And now it's time to leave Nula and return home, sadder, richer, wiser. Huge thanks to Caroline for sharing this brave and beautiful book with us, to Nikki Birch for making us sound better to you than we sound to ourselves, and to Unbound for the tin of tweed talc. <laughs> <laughs> tweed by Lonthric. Yes. Uh, You can download all 140-something previous episodes, plus follow links, clips, and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website at batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter and Facebook, and now in Sound and Pictures on Instagram too. You can also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We aim to survive without paid-for advertising, and your generosity helps us to do that. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early, and for less than a round in McDade's, lock listeners get two extra lock listed a month, our version of the Open University, where we get to stay home and study all the books, music and films we care to, and then share them with you. Uh, lock listeners also get to hear their names read out on the show as a mark of our thanks and appreciation. So thank you this week to Jenny Bygrave and Roger McMorran. Caroline, is there anything else you wish to add? We'd like to thank you for being brilliant yeah, amazing guest oh. and making us brilliant read this guest. book and do you recommend this book to lots of people i do and they never read it <laughs> <laughs> well they should they, they should. really yeah. really should hey this one's in print everyone imagine that you could just go and buy this or borrow it and read it and, oh my, and you should so as as you mentioned earlier i'm a virago author and i wrote this impassioned <laughs> email to donna who's the head of modern classics over there i was like donna you have to republish this book it has to happen i will bravely write the foreword <laughs> you know those emails you send and then she yeah. was like yeah they've just republished a beautiful edition here it is i was like oh well i guess great <laughs> That's all for now. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. And we'll be back in a fortnight. 
If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.